Hello and welcome back to Glittering a Turd, you lovely lot. I hope your day hasn't been too turdy, and if it has, I hope another dose of turd chat will help you in some small or big way. You're not alone. We are all dealing with some kind of turd at the moment. Personally, well, as you may or may not know, I'm living with cancer and just last week I had news that my current treatment has stopped working. At this precise moment, I don't really know what will happen next, but I'm listening to my body and my mind and what it needs most right now. And it's thanking me that I've taken a moment to breathe in Italy. At this exact moment, I'm sat under a grapefruit tree in Tuscany. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just as idyllic and wonderful as you can possibly imagine. And in all honesty, I couldn't have needed this short and sweet break away with my darling twin sister, Maren, anymore. Anyway, today is not about me. It's about Sophie Ellis-Bexter and her turd. Um, she's here to remind us that turds really can blindside us when we least expect them. But I'm not going to say any more. I will just let you have a listen. Enjoy. Today on the podcast, I am chatting turds with one of the most glittery people I think I know, um, Sophie Ellis Bechter, singer, songwriter with six studio albums under her belt. I would be really surprised if you haven't danced or shivied to murder on the dance floor at some point in your life. And if you haven't, may I suggest you do so after this chat? <laughs> In recent times, she's been dancing and singing in her kitchen disco and entertained us all through multiple pandemic lockdowns. Welcome to Glittering a Turd, Sophie. <laughs> Hello, thank you for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Uh, when I thought about this podcast and when I think about glitter, obviously, you're very much in my thinking because I think <laughs> for a good chunk of the pandemic, you know, I would see you strutting your stuff on Instagram in a really glittery outfit and I was like you are the epitome <laughs> of glitter so this is perfect you are perfect for this well I suppose as well for your topic that that fits in pretty well given mm. that the pandemic was definitely not great and m- making it sparkly was something that we decided to do just as a sort of tonic really yeah so it kind of it kind of fits your theme doesn't it <laughs> oh massively you threw all the glitter at the biggest turd ever but in terms <laughs> of the turd you want to discuss today do you want to introduce it for me please yeah, well, I mean, there are a few things that sprung to mind, but the the thing that I think was the most sort of resonant was probably um, getting dropped by my record label uh, when I was nineteen, because I just I just didn't think there was any coming back from that, and I thought that basically I'd already had the sort of peak of my career over and done with before I'd even hit twenty, and all my friends were off doing things. I think 99% of them had gone on to university, so they were still there. And I'd gone from this sort of band. I was in a band called The Audience, and we were really, really hyped. So it'd been quite a steep ascendancy, and then this very rapid dump down. And um, it was just really blue. It was a really blue time, and I felt quite lost and a bit aimless. And I thought, I don't honestly know that everything's ever going to be as good as that ever again. Okay, so you were 19 and you thought that was your life and to have such a big change and shift. So how how did you manage that and what was happening at the time? Who were you? What kind of a 19-year-old were you? <laughs> I hadn't always known I wanted to sing, but I'd always adored music. So from the age of 16, I'd started going clubbing all the time. 
through that, I met a guy that said he had a friend that was looking for a singer in a band. So I'd, I'd been introduced to this guy and I thought, I remember thinking, oh, that'd be a good story to tell my grandkids one day, you know, that I'd been in a band. And so when the band started to come together and we started doing gigs, I was sort of just taking it all in. But once I started actually performing, I thought, oh, I think I might have found the thing I really want to do. So I felt pretty hard and fast, really, for, for what that whole thing was, really, for being a singer, for being part of a band, for making music. I was really seduced by it. And after we'd done a few gigs, we got quite a lot of record deal offers because at that time it was very much a time where A&R people from labels were going out to pubs and clubs and trying to find new bands. So on the night of my 18th birthday, we announced on stage during one of our gigs which label we were signing to, and we signed to Mercury Records. I was still doing my A-levels, so I signed the record deal, I think, in May. I sat the final exams for my A-levels in June. July, moved out of home, went off and did the band. And we were really very hyped and uh, went off and did tours. We did an enemy tour. We were supporting lots of people. We did Glastonbury and Reading and Phoenix and all these festivals, all the stuff I'd been obsessed with before I'd been a singer. Just suddenly I was like on the other side of the wall, like, you know, where, where, the, where everything's happening. So when we'd released our album and it didn't do that well and then all the wheels started falling off while we were making a second album, I think I was just kind of quite shocked really at how fragile the whole thing had been I thought I thought there was a little bit more substance there but really there wasn't it all kind of fell apart pretty quickly I think I just felt really well like a failure really because all my girlfriends when I'd gone off on tour and they'd all not gone off to uni we were all caught up in that bit where it's like okay where's life taking us you know where does that path lead and suddenly my path had gone to a dead end and um and then I thought, well, I can't go to uni now. I'll be like the Fonz. I'll be really old and they'll all be younger than me. So I just felt a bit stuck, really. I just thought, I don't really know what else I can do. I don't really have a plan B here. Yeah. Did you feel like that that was your destiny? And like, like how do you pivot from that? Because I think at that time you think, if I don't have any skills, what do, what do I do? And Exactly. I don't think you were the first. I don't think you'd be the last 19-year-old or, you know, around that age that thinks, what is my life? I think surely we all have that crisis. Do you think, because obviously your your parents were in um, the TV industry, the film industry, and they you probably saw their careers really shine and they were at their peak for a really long time. So did you think, well, that just automatically happens to people? Like they are, because they were successful career people, right? They were successful career people, but I think more, I just, I really wanted to be kind of independent actually, because... My mum and my stepdad had uh, my brother and sister, but they were quite a lot younger than me. So as soon as I could, so I moved out at 18 as soon as I'd finished exams. And the house was very much, you know, the, the tone was set by the little ones. So the fact they were still going to primary school and all that. So I felt like I couldn't move back home. It was, I think for me, it was not really more about the career side. I think it was more about, I just wanted to be independent. I wanted to be doing my own thing. I wanted to be, I was ambitious, you know. Mm-hmm. I had things I wanted to get on with. And it's that whole thing of like, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. You know, as soon as things weren't going that well, I just found myself without anybody else really to, I didn't really know who to turn to. I felt like it all went very quiet. And the band I'd been in, they were good people, but they all just kind of dispersed really and went off and did other things. So I was just a bit like, whoa, I I actually just don't know quite what I do now. Mm -hmm. I don't really know what happens next as someone who's been through that process. And I always think, you know, when I watch kids doing things like 
reality shows or, or anything like that, anything where there's like a big swirl around you and then it all goes quiet. I think there's so much support and it's a very familiar tale to be someone that's trying to achieve something. But when you're on the other side of the hump, well, there's quite a lot of members, but it's like not a club anyone wants to be a member of. So yeah. I think you just feel a little bit like, what now, you know? Yeah. And and I didn't really have any skills. So I, was, I started trying to write a book, really, really terrible book. Um, I started making some, doing like arts and craft type stuff. I think just so that like every day there'd been something I'd tried to achieve that day. From what I can gather, they just, um, from what I can gather, looking, I mean, I don't know much about the music industry, but from what I can gather, I guess, from, from those shows like Pop Idol, and, and I'm guessing it was even worse in, in the 90s, that they don't prepare you for the downside of it. They, they love it when things are great and it's all go, 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 but they don't prepare you for when things go tits up. Exactly. So what do you do with that? I think you just, in a way, this is kind of what made me think of the glitter aspect. In a way, it was quite good for me because I think up until then, everything that had gone on in my life, I'd never really committed 100% to anything really. So when I was at school, you know, I was very much one of those people where I'd hand the work in, but there was always a kind of reason why I wouldn't, if I got a B instead of a, or, you know, or C instead of a B, it'd be like, that's because, oh, I was tired or I did it in 10 minutes or I hadn't really revised. You know what I mean? There was always a caveat. And I think when the band had got dropped, I thought, right, I do not want to be able to say that whatever happens next is someone else's fault. Like I've got to take responsibility now for the next bit. And whether it's successful or not successful, I've just got to shoulder it rather than being like, oh, that's because so-and-so didn't do this or that didn't happen. And I think, oh, sorry, it's my doorbell. I think that was quite good for me in a way. It's it's very easy to fall into a trap of making excuses about things, isn't it? And sort mm -hmm. of blaming it on circumstance. And obviously sometimes there are variables outside your control. But I think the fundamental thing of just thinking, I'm just going to work hard and see what I can make come of this. It was quite good for me in a way, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think at the time I was really just trying to think of anything that I could possibly do. And I do, I mean, I love... I love reading and I'd, I used to edit my school newspaper. So I used to write the odd article. So I was like, I know, I'll write a book. But honestly, I think I think to write a book, you have to have it like falling out of you a little bit, don't you? You've got to have that impetus. And I definitely didn't. So, you know, I decided to go completely out of the box and write about a young girl who'd um, been signed to a record deal and then found herself dropped in her teenage years. <laughs> <laughs> so it's literally like, You're sort of like very thinly veiled <laughs> <laughs> opportunity to vent. Um, and I... I honestly think it's probably the worst bit of writing I've ever done. It was so shockingly bad. And one day I'm going to open some box in my house and I'm going to find the transcript because it'll be, I'm sure I've got it hidden somewhere, but oh my word, it was terrible. But I think I just needed a bit of a catharsis, really. I think I just needed to let it out. No one saw it and never saw the light of day. I didn't submit it anywhere. I didn't do anything with it. It probably was just a bit of therapy. Definitely. And I think as well, sometimes when things are a bit, feeling a bit wobbly, if you feel a bit discombobulated, then you just need to have something you've achieved during the day, don't you? Just to make the day like a little bit make sense. So I think like like lockdown was a perfect example. I think everybody found themselves like that, where even if all you did that day was just, you know, make some a nice meal, like like how many people were like making bread and things like that? It was just like it was a thing you could do. You didn't it wasn't there in the morning. By the end of the day it's there. It's like 
something has happened today. Today has counted. I know. I feel like that all the time. And then sometimes I think just going to the post office. Sometimes I think sometimes I I take going to the post office as quite a bit massive achievement. And um, if I have one of those days where I think if I've gone to the post office, then I've really nailed it. Um, I actually think going to the post office is a brilliant example. That's that's always quite a big thing, and like, and you always feel bad on the day when you meant to go and you didn't go. <laughs> well, I just don't understand how people who have nine to five jobs go to post offices because they're literally never open for them. So okay, so you shelved the book for now, but obviously a few years yet later you wrote a man um, a memoir, and we'll come to that in a bit. So you realise, okay, I need to own this a little bit. I need to take responsibility. And that's actually quite an amazing thing to learn at a relatively young age. Um, but how quickly did you learn that? Like, how did you just wake up and go, right, I'm going to own this moment? Um, no, I think I went through a phase of being really quite blue. Yeah, there was a, a long bit where I felt quite aimless. But I think it was more kind of, there was just a moment where I thought, right, you know, enough. Dust yourself down, get on with it. And I think as well for singing, because singing had kind of up until then almost been handed to me on a plate because I hadn't really meant to be a singer. And then this band opportunity had come along and then, oh, we've got a record deal. And so I got this amazing experience, but I hadn't done loads of hard work to chase it. So I think I thought, right, if you really want to sing, you'll want to sing no matter what. You'll want to sing when the going's good or the going's rough. So I thought, yeah, okay, I still choose, I still choose music. I still choose singing. So I think in a way it was quite good. It kind of consolidated my relationship with what I do. I think that was quite important for me. I do sometimes wonder what what would have happened if everything had just continued on an upward trajectory and if there'd only been, I think having success after success, it sounds glorious, but I don't know if it's very good for your mind, really. I think it's quite good to know what it feels like when things don't go the way you want them to so that you can kind of, really appreciate it when it's going well and I know that makes me sound very Enid Blyton but it has kind of kept me quite perky through lots of aspects of my career because no career kind of goes straight up it's always lots of like peaks and troughs Mm -hmm. and I think the bit where it's gone on the downward bit feels horrible but you you kind of think there will be a bit you've got to keep optimistic and then when you get the bit where it's going even if you're just on the brink of something new and you know if I'm bringing a new song and and I've got a day full of interviews and people go, oh, you must be really tired doing this. And I'm always like, no, it's, I'm, I feel really lucky that people want to speak to me about what I've got coming out. There's like so many people doing what I do. Like you're not never entitled to it, are you? It's not like I, it's not like anyone owes me any support, really. So I think it's kept me in quite good stead with all that, really. Yeah, mm. I guess it helps <laughs> you check in every now and again and. Because somewhere in that mind, you still have that feeling, that visceral feeling of how it felt to kind of have it taken away from you. So, and that that must be actually really quite healthy in some aspects. And I guess it makes you not get cocky and be like, yeah, and just appreciate it a bit more. Yeah, plus it stops you being so frightened about it, actually. So I think that meant that when I had the opportunity to do a solo career, which was kind of by default, really. You know, I I would have quite happily stayed in the band for as long as the band would have had me, I think. So the, the, I didn't mean to be a solo artist, really. But I think once I had that, it made me take a lot of things with a bit of a pinch of salt, really, because, I mean, obviously I don't, I never wanted it to not, not go well, but it wasn't something that was looming over me as an unknown fear. It was like, actually, I want everything to feel right for me and I want to be able to go to sleep at night feeling like I made the right decisions for what I'm up to. 
And I think it, it meant I was never really like desperate. Um, it had to be right or nothing really. I kind of felt more like that. I mean, it doesn't mean I didn't make lots of mistakes. I made, I make mistakes all the time, but <laughs> that was the attitude of it anyway. I'd be really worried if you didn't make mistakes. <laughs> okay, so the definition of glitter, what what do you think that is for you, looking at your what happened after um, the drop yeah. and like going solo and doing your own music? I guess the glitter came in a sort of literal and metaphorical way because what happened, the sort of serendipity was that after... When I was in my band, I'd signed a record deal, but I'd also signed a publishing deal. So publishing is the bit that's about songwriting. Um, and actually, that was kind of odd that I'd signed the deal because I didn't write any songs in my first band at all. I wasn't interested in songwriting. Um, and when I'd, I'd been dropped from the label, but I actually still had this publishing deal, even though nothing was really happening. That was kind of dormant. So when Instrumental of Groovejet had been sent there, with um, the DJ Spiller looking for someone to sing on it, uh, someone there at the publishers thought of me. So I got sent this track and I was an indie kid, like proper indie kid. So when I was sent a song that was a dance disco house track, I thought that whoever was sent it to me was, it's almost an insult, quite frankly. I was like, I'm an indie kid. Why on earth would I want to have anything to do with house music? But then... I listened to it a couple more times and I thought, actually, there's something in it I like. And for me, it, I had no idea at all that Groovejet was going to do well commercially. But I did think this is actually a really nice way to just completely flip everything and do something that's separate to the world I was in. So, you know, the Melody Maker and Enemy, which really dominated the indie world and was such um, a credible and, you know, everybody used it as a source for how to feel about everything. So if they said you were cool, everybody would say you're cool. If they were snooty about you, everybody was, you know, would be like that about you. And they weren't particularly kind to us. And when the band got dropped, I felt quite humiliated, you know. So for me, doing Groovejet, it was like, right, this is outside of that world. They won't even know I've done it. I'll just go off and do this dance thing and it'll be a bit of a, like, just a journey somewhere else. So I think, I think that was the glitter, really, because that introduced me to a whole new, not just a whole new genre of music, but a whole new way of thinking. Because before that, I'd been so set of like, it's indie or die. That's the kind of music I make. And then I was like, actually, you can pretty much do anything. And since then, I've always loved flipping around and trying different genres. It's really fun. I love it very much. I guess it's suddenly you felt potentially more creative and you thought, well, there is there are endless possibilities when it comes to your music and which direction you can take it in. That must have been so exciting, actually. A whole new world. Really exciting. And also at the time, so this was 2000, so that dance scene was really, like, massive. And I'd never been to Ibiza before, and, you know, I got taken over to Ibiza to sing that song at a club. I didn't get the whole thing of DJ. I didn't get dance music, and I didn't get the whole thing of DJs at all. I was like, I don't get why people get so excited. They just play one song and then another song. And then going to Ibiza, and I had to sing at, like, four in the morning or something stupid like that. So I, me and a girlfriend, the two of us had gone over, so I had to be sober and wait till I sang, but just be in the club. And this DJ came on and he DJed, I don't know, two or three hours. And I was like, ah, I get it now because he just took us on this journey. You know, I wasn't thinking about it. I was just dancing and all the dynamic of how he was playing the tracks and what he was mixing into what. I was like, oh, I see. That's what it is. That's why people get so excited. And it was just this whole other world. It was really exciting. That was a very exciting time to be doing 
the, basically house music was crossing over to be the commercial norm that was becoming really mainstream. So it's, it came out of it just being an Ibiza thing or whatever. It was now mainstream. It was being played on Radio 1. It was on adverts on the telly, that kind of thing. So it was quite exciting being part of that whole journey of what was happening with dance music. I mean, that must have been such a fun <laughs> time to explore all this. I mean, Groove Jet was very much yeah. part of my growing up soundtrack, for sure. Um, I heard it so much in my little room. I mean, I, it, I was reading in your book that your walls were covered with like posters of Madonna and stuff like that. I mean, my walls were covered yeah. with pictures of polar bears and penguins. But I remember <laughs> listening. <laughs> that was really cool. Um, uh, I remember listening to the radio and your music was playing on it. Um, and so, yeah, you were very much part of my youth. So you produced your first album. And how did that feel? Obviously, it was very different to your band's music. Yes, it was. Um, but mainly it was just really fun. And I I was very, very fortunate because I landed on my feet with a few really key elements. Like the woman that did my first ever solo video, the director, is a woman called Sophie Muller, who I still work with now. And she's someone that she she's very much got her own style. And you know when people have just got really good taste and it really just... It means then it's not about whether what what's in fashion. Like really good styled is just a perennial, isn't it? So I really trusted her. I really liked her approach to everything. So when we did Take Me Home video and Murder on the Dance Floor and Music Gets the Best of Me and all these videos, we were just having lots and lots of fun. And she was like, what do you want to do? And then we'd kind of talk back and forth and then get a plan together and then get really excited about it. And actually, like I still work with her now. Like It's just glorious. Likewise, the two women that did my hair and makeup on that video, Lisa and Louise, I still work with them now. So that's, you know, we're talking about relationships that have been going on for like over 20 years now. Yeah. Uh, the people that did my artwork for the album, same thing, a company called Michael Nash. So lots of things like that. They were really, they were like these brilliant people who were just really smart and really en- encouraged me to really do exactly what felt like, what resonated with me. And I loved that very much. It's really powerful when people have your back like that and I think I just loved putting the album together I, there was one song to so take me home the first single that's actually a cover of a share song and it's because when I was doing groove jet um I would sing in all these funny little dance clubs all around the country um these dance clubs and then in between driving to these places at like two or three in the morning I was with a tour manager called JP and he had a, a CD of a Larry Levan club mix of him DJing at the Paradise Garage in New York in the 70s so it's all this classic disco and one of the tracks was this seven minute remix of Take Me Home the share version which is honestly if you haven't heard it check it out it's beautiful and I used to love it and so that was the song I said to my A&R man I'd really love to do a cover of this so I just sort of put things together and Murder on the Dance Floor uh, was done with this guy called Greg Alexander um He'd written the majority of the track and I just finished off a few bits and bobs. We ended up writing together more and more. Um, So just, it was fun. I was meeting people I liked, trying out different songwriting partnerships. And actually for me, it was all about cutting my teeth as a songwriter because I'd never, I didn't write before Groove Jet. That was the first thing I'd ever released. So it was kind of nice for me to go like, oh, I'd like to do this and I'd like to do that. And and I worked with Alex Jones from Blur and I'd been a big Blur fan. So that was really cool. And I was like, right, this is good. Let's just have a go here. Let's have some fun. 
but yeah. mainly my memories are that it was lots of fun yeah mm. <laughs> um I want to kind of fast forward on your career a bit because um I, we could talk about it all for hours I'm sure but I want to um <laughs> the boys go to and no I want to go to another glittery bit which is I guess more recent where you actually helped other people glitter a massive turd called the pandemic um <laughs> like what what made you think one day let's just stream a kitchen disco on instagram to all the people that follow me and see where it goes yeah it wasn't my idea it was uh, so when when we had the first lockdown our family had already been in our own family lockdown for about a week because I don't know if you remember that bit of the pandemic, but it was the bit where if anyone had any of the symptoms, they had to stay at home and everybody who knew was with them had to stay at home. So one of the kids had got sent home from school with a cough and that was it. Like, And it was really distressing. I remember picking up my other child from the same school and saying, oh, your brother's been sent home earlier with a cough. So actually, I don't think we can go back to school for for a little while. And he just sobbed all the way home. He was like, what? I can't go back for two weeks. That's what they were doing. There were no tests. So so we were at home. And then obviously, this was happening in like microcosm all around the country and then all around the world. Obviously, we were starting to see this tide rolling. Such a strange time, wasn't it? And then when we went into that first lockdown, um, there seemed to be so many people that, instinctively started reaching out through their through their social channels so people would put their phone up and just accompany themselves on piano or accompany themselves on guitar sing a song and I was like oh my goodness there are so many really talented people and I, I my piano playing is crap I haven't done piano lessons since I was like 13 I was like oh why didn't I keep going with piano I can't accompany myself and I think I just felt really like the whole side of my brain, like a whole part of what makes me me was just sort of shut down. Like, oh no, there's no performing, there's no creative. You're just at home sort of indefinitely for the time being. And then Richard said, well, why don't we do a party, like one of your party sets, you can sing and we'll just live stream it on Instagram. And and I was like, that sounds so ludicrous. You know, at the time my youngest was 14 months old. Obviously it was just the just the seven of us I didn't have anyone here to help me with anyone so I was like I don't really know how I'm going to make that work but let's just have a go and if everything goes pear shape we'll just stop quit the stream so I put on a cat suit like a sequin cat suit classic tried to sing through the songs the kids were everywhere and I was pretty sure that people thought I looked ridiculous and I was pretty sure I think I finished it by saying well I think I've just like finished my career basically (laughs) because I thought people were going to be like she's gone mad very early on um and what on earth was that I thought it looked kind of silly you know but actually we just got all these really lovely messages there was just this outpouring of warmth and you know what it's like when you do something online and you read through things and you know you're not supposed to be reading through it but you do anyway and then you're like waiting for the bitchy comments and the nastiness Mm -hmm. and there just wasn't anything it was just really really lovely lovely stuff and Richard and I felt this real lift in our brains like a tonic just of like Actually, that felt really good. I think as well, the, the sort of adrenaline before it and then the relief when it's done kind of mimicked gigs for us. So we thought, you know what, that that was actually really fun. Let's do it again next Friday. And then we just didn't really look back. It was just like every Friday at 6.30. And, you know, for the kids, it was a really tiny thing. It was just something that their parents did every Friday night. And Oh, here come mum and dad again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
I think for the little ones, they got really quite into it. And I, I'm yeah. pretty sure it's been really defining, especially for my youngest, because he mm-hmm. basically started when he was one. We did the last one at Christmas, so just before he turned three. So that's a really big deal that there was always like lots of music and the flashing lights and this little moment we would have. And I remember one time after we'd finished them and we, he sort of walked into the playroom one, one Friday evening and went, it's disco time. We were like, huh? we looked at the time and it was literally 6.30 and we're like, that's spooky. Yeah. I mean, loads of people did stuff, but I think it takes someone special to kind of go, I'm going to create some joy here too and and, and <laughs> add to that. But And at the same time, my family gets some entertainment too. Um, I absolutely loved it. And I've got so many dressing up outfits that I'd been collecting over the years. Uh-huh. And then suddenly it was like, I'm going to wear all of them for these discos. Yeah. It was like, it was like a side of me that's like more like my silly private side, I suppose. I wasn't thinking of it like a singer. I was thinking of it as what felt quite instinctive of like, this yeah. is what I want to do to just let loose. It was making me think of club nights like Sink the Pink. Have you ever been to Sink the Pink? Uh, I haven't. I actually haven't been to Sink the Pink, but I would, yeah, it's too late now. Because yeah, you know, the, 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 the attitude. It's a kind yeah, of yeah. Oh, anything yeah. goes, just... Just go for it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was wearing all sorts of crazy outfits and singing all sorts of covers. Mm-hmm. And I just, just really like, I need this. I actually mm-hmm. need it. Yeah. We all needed <laughs> yeah. it. And you helped us like get there. Um, and how, like, we didn't need an excuse to put on a glittery outfit or any kind of like ridiculous outfit. Um, yeah. But do, I mean, do you still do it now? Do you, or, or even before the pandemic, did you think, you know, music is such a healer. Like music oh, God, really yeah. can turn things around so much. Has it happened in other situations before that for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's been this my whole life, my whole life. And, you know, that's I really want that for my kids. I want them to find that because it is incredible how you can go from feeling one thing one minute and then the right song comes on and it's like, oh, I feel so much better. Um and, you know, when you're going through a tough time, like if you're ever going through a heart, like heartbreak, all the songs written about heartbreak, it's like they're talking to you. It's like, yes, yes, that all makes sense. I mean, it's incredible, really. Um, no, I, I just think music is just sensational. It's just the best. When, it's, when it all comes together like that, it's just pure joy. And I really i have always needed it. And I, like our kitchen already had all that stuff, so... You know, we've had the disco ball and the laser lights and the smoke machine and the bunting. That's been there for years, pre-pandemic. So I think as a family, that's how we've lived for a really long time. And, you know, there's a big part of me that's like a kid with it all, really. That's the beauty of it. It's almost like a, a portal, isn't it? Like when a song comes on that you love or the way I feel when I look at like a really fantastic sparkly outfit or something, it like connects me to like little, little me, I guess. You kind of go like, oh, yeah. You can't hide that feeling. It's just great. And I get to make it part of my day job, you know. And there are some times when I'm about to go on stage and I might have loads of other stuff in my head, you know, or some other dramas going on or there's billions of things to sort. But when you go on stage, you can only really be in the here and now. Always feel better when I come off. Yeah. And it's probably lifted all the people that were watching you. I hope so. That's the idea. I'm doing my best. <laughs> I mean, I've definitely been a, a big believer that a kitchen is where you're meant to dance and have a sing song. Like, yeah, music on when we're cooking. And... Yeah. So, do you worry about being dropped now? Is that a fear that you live with? 
or not? Well, no, because um, for the last, oh, let me think. It must be 10 years. I've actually, I've got my own label now. So the worst aspect of um, being independent is that all of the motivation to keep going has to come from you. If I decided tomorrow, like, you know what, I'm going to take a break or I'm done, no one's going to come banging on my door saying, no, we need more music from you. So you have to kind of be your own cheerleader all the time. I think that's the kind of the trickiest aspect. So when things are on a downward turn, you're like, come on, you've got to, you've got to be the one to kind of keep the momentum going. But the flip of it is I work with all the people I want to work with. I have lots of fun. It's given me a lot of freedom. And when I did my, so I, when I left, I left Universal after 10 years, I've still got some really good friends I made there, but I made an album straight after that that was a really um, different thing. So I decided I'd make an album, no dance, no disco. And it's a record called Wonderlust. And I wrote it with a guy called Ed Harcourt. And it's kind of quite folky and pretty and different. It was sort of inspired by sort of like a Eastern European kind of a flavor, really. Um, but I really, I really enjoyed it so much. And I paid for the album myself and did it all like, right, I'm just gonna, you know, this is my like, leaving Universal, like, what am I going to do? Do I want to buy a stupid car? Or am I going to pay for a record? Like, right, I want a record is what I want. And there was something so brilliant about paying my own bills with it. So I could really just be like, I'm making a folk record. Leave me alone. <laughs> you know? Um, and actually, as things turned out I ended up I made the record and then I went off and did Strictly Come Dancing so like really very different environment and I remember when I was finishing that thinking god I'm about to release this record and people are going to be like I thought you're going to do an album of show tunes you know what's this folky record but actually it ended up doing really well and I think it's honestly like my proudest achievement is that record um we had a single called Youngblood this really pretty ballad and it's a love song really sort of inspired by a conversation I have with my mum about my stepdad so it's really close to home and it just felt really satisfying to be at that point in my career and just doing something that I was completely answerable for and also really supported my husband Richard was brilliant he played on the record and really encouraged me to go for it with what I was doing working with Ed was brilliant so it was a really it's a really special time you don't often get moments like that in your career and you've you've got to really recognize it when it's happening, you know, because they don't, you can try and chase things, but really when everything just kind of comes together, that's quite unique, I think. So yeah, I don't fear being dropped because I'd have to drop myself and that would be really harsh on me, wouldn't yeah. it? <laughs> well, I guess <laughs> there's, there's an equivalent fear of like, what if I don't, um, you know, what if the creative juices don't flow or like, what if I can't produce what the people want or what if this doesn't? Yeah, but actually, I don't really think like that anymore. I think when I've learned a lot of lessons over the way, and I think when I was younger, it's really easy to fall into a trap of, well, I kind of feel like like I want to do that song, but I think my fans would probably prefer this. But actually, people like what feels right. They're not. I don't think people are quite as um. You can get very sort of caught up in sort of second guessing those choices, and record company thinking will make you do that too because everything's done by committee. So they'll be like, we think this one would do the best with radio. And we feel like this one, you know, would suit, I don't know, demographic. But oh, I, I can't even, I can't stand thinking about myself that way. I don't want to be able to analyze it. I just feel like I'll do what feels right to me and take and then follow on from where that leads me, really. I'm not very good at forward planning, but 
I do know that I, if I get excited about what I'm about to do next, then that's what I have to do. I mean, my manager will get very frustrated with me sometimes because, you know, sometimes I'll just say, I can see that's a good opportunity, but no, I don't want to do that. Um, but I think you've got to follow your nose, haven't you? It's yeah. the only thing you've got, really. I would say your ability for, to follow your nose must surely be one of the results of obviously that early experience of being dropped and having to navigate that massive shift and like, oh, shit, it's on me now. Yeah, definitely. And I think just having ridden the waves for a few years, really, I think the thing that scares me more than than that, I've always found the idea of like, you know, the way now that we have this sort of cancel culture that mm. I find terrifying. Things are brutal out there when it happens. God. What worries you about that? I think it's just so brutal. And I think probably everybody has that fear, don't they? Of just, just the idea of like, I don't know, something you do or say in a moment that then gets taken the wrong way or, you know, and then just the idea of everything just being like, oh, it's that finger pointing, isn't it? Like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. And we see it happen to other people. I just think that is, yeah. I think probably as well, because I'm a people pleaser, that that whole style of, of things going just like really freaks me out. Yeah. I, I, would, I would probably break my heart, I think. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that feeling is very real. I think for a lot of people. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, it's, I just don't think it's going to happen to you, so. <laughs> I hope I, <laughs> but then if it does happen we can come back and talk about how you glittered that turn too yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah okay cool <laughs> can we just talk about the glitteriest bit of this whole career that you've had um and that is your cameo on neighbors <laughs> i haven't actually watched it back yet but yeah i definitely enjoyed doing it i oh, i mean i had to what a hoot <laughs> It's genuinely been part of my life for a really long time. And it's very hard mm. to explain the love and why people, like people don't really get it at all. But I think for me, it's that 25 minutes of escapism that I really need. Oh, yeah. um, so I'm going to have to find something else. But um, <laughs> yeah, so how did that come about? So, well, I totally identify with you about the escapism. I used to watch it every day when I got in from mm. school. And I was always neighbours, never home and away. I just, I don't know why I just picked one and I was very loyal to that. And um, it was just such a massive part of like that part of my life, I think, like primary school, you know, you'd go in the next day and everybody would talk about everything they'd seen the night before yep. and all the characters and Lassiter's and Ramsey Street and all that stuff. It was just, you know, it was right there and it was so huge. And um, even though I haven't watched Neighbours for a little while, I was still very comforted by its ongoing presence. Um, so when they asked me to, to have this cameo I was like yes and actually I had the day they were in London shooting I had something else I had to do so I actually filmed my bit at something crazy like 6am I mean it was I had to get there for like something like five o'clock to get ready and then it was really really early but I was like I have to do this and they were all so nice and I was with um Jason Donovan's daughter Gemma who was really lovely all the crew were gorgeous and what was really nice is that they totally understand People, how people see neighbors and people's affection for it and uh I think it's really sad because I, I could see the industry as well that was part of that show and I I didn't quite realize I knew that uh, neighbors was watched more in the UK than anywhere else but I didn't understand that its entire mm-hmm. sort of industry was was completely reliant on on channel yeah. five keeping it going it's so sad okay 
Can you tell me one lesson that you think you've learned that you want to share with us all that you think might help other people to um, farm your turd or glittering your turd? Oh, well, I suppose, I suppose I don't know how much wisdom I can impart because I feel like the thing of the kitchen disco stuff, I feel like people kind of learned that for themselves, didn't they? Because I think during all the lockdown stuff, we, I think so many people started to understand that whatever brought a bit of joy wherever it was found that was a a thing to really chase and I feel like with with what happened during those couple of years it was like a magnifying glass being held over everything so the bits of everyday life that were stressful became ultra stressful and the tensions would really ramp up and then the bits of things that were, were where we'd find the fun it was like they were kind of taken to like caricature really but um I think that kind of everyday joy is something that's really worth making sure you you factor into your everyday life because it makes such a massive difference to your overall equilibrium. I mean, I know we talk a lot about mindfulness, and I think that's all wonderful, but not everybody not everybody's is is brain works that way. Like for me, that's not something that actually suits me that well. I can't sit very still and find that. But what I suppose that is really about is about being in the moment, and I think finding little moments of joy even if it's just like I really love when I walk my kids to school and then the walk back I really love that walk back it's only like 10-15 minutes but it just gives me time to just sort of think through everything else that's going on and work out what I want to do next and it's a bit where I know that no one I'm already involved in a task so I don't have to be doing another task there's no pressure on me to be achieving anything more than just getting myself home but it just gives me that freedom of thought. It's mm-hmm. it's so important and it can just make the difference in your mood, can't it? Yeah, huge difference. And do you think you would tell the 19-year-old you who'd just been dropped by your label that you will find the joy again in those little moments? Would she be like, whatever? <laughs> what would she say? <laughs> I like to think I was still optimistic. What would I say to her? I mean, I think, um, I think sometimes when things are tricky it's just about one foot in front of the other isn't it you don't have to always have a grand plan but I think so long as you keep some kind of momentum one foot in front of the other making sure you get out of bed in the morning for something for me that was the big thing I learned really I you do need that don't you just a reason to get out of bed and make the day count I think it's yeah sometimes when things are the trickiest is when you're actually developing your resilience I didn't realise quite how formative it was going to be, really. I think about it fairly often because it was just such a significant time. And I'm sure, as you said, a lot of people in their late teens, early 20s have that. And I know lots of my girlfriends, when they finished uni, that was the bit where they really were like, oh, okay, and what now? We've kind of come out the other side of this path and now, like, I don't actually really know what to do now. But one foot in front of the other and the answer will will come to you definitely and you can keep changing your mind about stuff too can't you you know my mum she signed her first ever book deal when she was 60 like you don't have to have a you don't have to get it all done when you're young you kind of get a bit trapped into thinking that don't you that Mm -hmm. if you haven't achieved it by the time you're like I don't know you leave school with the qualifications and that's probably you but actually there's always time to kind of try to take on a new challenge everything you just said perfect a lot of rambly rambly wisdom in there hopefully (laughs) and then one thing tangible or otherwise that you think has helped you to glitter your turd oh well I think it's got to be music 
music always it's like a force field around you I don't feel the same way without music as I feel when when it's playing like do you remember when you were younger and then you'd have your Walkman on and you'd be walking somewhere and you just feel like you had like like a cool secret really yeah you know and yeah. even now when I'm on the, if I'm on the tube and I'm listening to a song I love it's like that feeling of like having a really good secret yeah <laughs> that is so true I love that feeling too and it's almost like I'm in a film uh, or in yeah. a music video or something and everything is just you do step outside of yourself and time don't you definitely and it's amazing that music can do that awesome okay lastly we're going to listen to one of the podcast listeners called Laura who has littered their own turd so my son Brody is disabled and the turd from all of that is exclusion and lack of access, which is really crap. Um, so the issue isn't Brody having a disability, it's the kind of world around him, I suppose, not making things easy for people like him. So trying to glitter as much as I can. One of the things I did when he was little, he was referred to the continent service and it took such a long time for him to get products that I started a petition on change.org and asked supermarkets to make bigger nappies and eventually ended up working with Tesco and they've now got a Tesco health uh, junior nappy brand for children like Brody, which is brilliant. And another turd in our life is um, accessible toilets, Brody wears nappies. So I campaign for Changing Places Toilets and I now work for the charity Pamis in Scotland on the campaign. And I suppose one of the other glittery aspects of it is meeting other people who go through the same kind of shit. Wow. Well, Laura sounds formidable. And uh, I've often thought actually about about people who are raising disabled children and how how they must feel about all that because yeah they we've still got a long way to go haven't we for yeah. inclusivity yeah and I think Laura herself is the glitter like for her to go on and try and make change not just for Brody but for other kids in the future is an amazing thing to do absolutely and it's just frustrating that it takes a mother to see the problem um, even though the problem has been around for years and, you know, um, Brody's not going to be the first child or the last child that's going to have to have things made easier for him so that he can exist in the world the way we do. It's like all those things when you fall outside of the typical pathway, mm -hmm. you suddenly realise how many people are on the outside of the typical. Yeah. And probably being Brody's mum has given Laura that real fire in her belly of like this isn't right and I want to make sure that things are better for my son and um and quite frankly that makes my uh <laughs> getting dropped from record deal at 19 <laughs> really important significance doesn't it absolutely uh, yeah, not that's, that's <laughs> one last thing one last thing to round things off do you have a drink nearby I've got a little bit of coffee left awesome I've got dregs of coffee as well this seems to be the theme <laughs> whenever I speak to guests it's like we're drinking dregs of coffee that's cool so to finish things off we're going to cheers with our dregs of coffee um we're going to cheers to life and we're going to cheers yes. to all the turds that life brings cheers to all of them may they all turn out glittery in the end 
never heard the phrase, success has many fathers, but failure is an orphan. Um, I kind of hope it wasn't just me. Thank you, Sophie, for bringing that into my life. I am totally with Sophie also. I also believe that it sometimes feels good when things don't go the way you want. I hope you can hear that cockerel doing its thing in the background. Yeah, it feels good when things don't go the way that you might want or planned because you get that moment to reflect. You can step step outside of yourself and it kind of allows you to appreciate the success and the good times even more. And that clarity and that realisation might not happen straight away, but when it does, it feels even better. I'm also guilty of forgetting to tune into silliness at times. And maybe all we really need sometimes is to have a kitchen disco. I think on that note, I hope that you can put on some of your favourite music right now. I hope that you can move that glorious body of yours. And I hope you can find some joy today. Uh, Thank you, Sophie, for beaming words that I think I really needed into my brain. Thank you, Laura, for sharing your turd. And thank you guys for listening. Um, If you enjoyed today's chat, please go and tell someone else about it. Um, Follow, subscribe, and please make sure you come back for more turd chat next week. Until then, goodbye.